Awesome. Hey, it's so good to be here with you guys. Uh, again, my name is Josh, and um, yeah, they were saying, is it Josh or Joshua Ryan? And the publisher made it, me use the middle, I don't know, it was kind of like to make your name stand out, but just Josh is great. So it's really good to be here. I know people always say that, it's good to be here, but honestly, it has been. I, my wife and I got here a few days ago, and there have been like multiple occasions the last few days where we're kind of walking through the city, and I'll find myself going, what is that? Like, I'll feel something on my face, and I look over, and I've got like a tear coming down. And it's weird, because I didn't even notice that it was happening until after it happened. And I'm like, I'm not sad, so that's not it. You know, like, I'm not like crying like sad, but I'm also not like uh, allergies or something, you know, just total like, <laughs> whatever. And just funny, like, it, it seems like the Spirit of God has been doing something in both me and my wife while we've been here, and it really feels like it's been joy. Like, there's a joy uh, that's been coming through. But even in a number of the conversations with some of the team here and people here uh, praying together and sharing stories of what the Spirit of God is doing uh, in, in our lives and our various cities and parts of the world we're in. And so it's really an honor to be here together with you guys today. Well... <laughs> As Mark said, I want to look at the story of Scripture today, looking at Scripture as a story. And one of the ways I want to do that is by trying to look at it through the lens of some of the hard, tough topics of Scripture. Um, I've found that I think many of us uh, fear that if we were to really take a close look at Scripture, that God is maybe hiding some skeletons in the closet. Right? That there are these parts of the story where if we really open up the closet doors, uh, open up Scripture, and take a closer look, I think the fear is that we might find God is not truly good or worthy of our trust. Yet I've found it's because I think we often have a caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story with those areas. And so what I want to do today is try and offer some paradigm shifts where we can take a close, hard look at some of the tough topics and offer some shifts that I think can help us reframe them in the biblical story uh, to get a more historic, robust, biblical, healthy understanding where we see these topics arising because of the goodness of God, not in spite of or in contradiction to it. That's really the biggest endgame for the day, is um, reclaiming a greater confidence in the goodness of God. It's not so much that we, you know, be the, the people with all the right answers, where we can convince people with our brilliant arguments, or, you know, debate people and have the argument to shut people down. That's not the goal or endgame. The goal is really that we could reclaim a greater confidence that's God's people in the goodness of God, that God is good through and through, all the way down in his very bones. Uh, not in spite of some of those hard parts of the story, but even through them, that we could gain a greater confidence. So I found if we can find the goodness of God even there, uh, we can kind of walk with greater confidence in the fullness of who God is for us today. So the first topic I want to look at is the topic of hell, right? Along those lines. Everybody's, <laughs> everybody's favorite dinner table conversation, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm the fun guy in the room, the hell guy, right? No, I, <laughs> I remember being in college and uh, university, you call it uni here, is that right? So I, I was in uni and um, I had this encounter with Jesus. Like, this is really where I, I met Christ, like God just encountered me with his greatness and I come running back to my dorm room, and I tell my dorm mate, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, I had this encounter with God, and he's so good, and Jesus, and can you believe it? Oh, he probably went on for like five, ten minutes, and like, just how good and amazing God is. And he sat and patiently listened, and then as soon as I was done, his very first question back to me was, so you think I'm going to hell now? <laughs> and I was just like, 
I didn't mention hell. I wasn't thinking about it. That wasn't even on my radar. I was just captivated by how good God was. Uh, but that was a real question for him. I think for many of us, it can be like that, where this may not be something you wrestle with. Maybe you have friends or family or people who've walked away from the faith who, who really kind of struggle uh, with this topic. And if you're like me, over time, as a new believer, as I had many friends who kind of wrestled with that, I, found I started to, too, going, God, how does this fit in the biblical story? How do I make sense of this part of my faith? And so this is the first one. I want to kind of look at the story of Scripture and use this as a lens to kind of go, what, what's actually going on uh, with this topic? All right, well, first off, I think there is a problematic story that many, uh, not only people in the church, but often in our culture, a problematic story many people have when it comes to how does hell work, right? And I would say that storyline goes something like this. That right now, here we are, walking along planet Earth, right? And one day we'll die, and when we die, God will either send us up to heaven, or down to hell, right? (laughs) Now, uh, there are a (laughs) a couple of problems with this story. Uh, This is what I call kind of the earth now, heaven, hell later story, right? And a couple of problems with this story. Uh, One is that heaven and hell have kind of no relationship to our present experience here on earth today, right? And another is that earth has kind of no place in our future eternal destiny with God. Um, And, but the the problem I want to kind of focus on this morning here is going, um, in this storyline, heaven and hell become kind of like these two co-equal counterparts, right? Like one's the positive side of the battery, the other's the negative side of the battery. Uh, One's yin, the other's yang. Kind of good and evil are kind of these co-equal competing counterparts that are competing for my eternal destiny. The problem with this is this isn't the way the Bible actually talks about them. Uh, Here's an example of what I mean. If you were to go to uh, Bible Gateway or an online Bible and kind of type into the search engine, we're going to type in the words heaven and hell, Uh, And using the NIV here, we're going to hit search. This is going to show us how many times the words heaven and hell appear together in the same verse in the Bible. And uh, what, you know, what, when I talk to friends, like, how many times do you think? They'll say, oh, maybe like a few hundred or a thousand, I don't know. But when we hit search, many are surprised to find that the answer is actually zero. Uh, That there are no times in the biblical story that heaven and hell appear together in the same verse. Obviously, the Bible talks about heaven, talks about hell, but it has a different way of talking about them and of framing their relationship. And this should be shocking, because I'm assuming here in Australia, I know back home in America, like, I grew up as a kid with, like, Looney Tunes, where, you know, got a little angel on one side, a little devil on the other side, you know, these kind of two co-equal counterparts. Heaven, hell, heaven, hell, it's just kind of the way that we tend to talk about uh, what they are and their dynamic. Now, obviously, they have a relationship to each other, but I'd suggest the Bible has a different way of framing in the story how they relate to one another. That said, heaven does have a counterpart, only it's not hell. If we clear the search engine, and we're going to type in heaven and earth, and we hit search, maybe a few guesses. How many many times would you guess that these words appear together in the biblical story? Any brave souls want to shout out? (laughs) What's that? 57. All right, 57. That's good. 200. 91. 300. All right, guess, Grace. All right, yeah, this is going to be like that jar of M&Ms where I, I don't know if I have a prize, the rest of my bottle of water. 
uh, when we hit search, what we actually find is uh, roughly 200 times. Somebody in the back, you can. <laughs> uh, roughly 200 times, depending on which translation you're using, right? But around 200 times in the biblical story that heaven and earth appear together. And this is significant. I would suggest to you that we get hell wrong because we get heaven and earth wrong. And if we reframe kind of the biblical storyline of heaven and earth, the smaller subtopic of hell starts to make more sense. And so what is that storyline? Well, I'd say it has three major movements, right? That heaven and earth are created by God, they're torn by sin, and they're destined for reconciliation. They're created by God, created good by a good God. They're torn by sin, kind of the destructive power of evil. And yet heaven and earth are destined for reconciliation, to be brought back together and then through Christ. So let's start kind of one at a time. We think about uh, created by God, first movement of the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is actually the opening of the biblical drama, the opening of the biblical narrative. A good God creates a good heavens and a good earth. And that language, heaven and earth, uh, it's similar to our language for land and sky, right? Like it's talking about the air above our heads and the ground beneath our feet. Um, only the difference would be, I think, when you and I, when we as Westerners, when we tend to think of land and sky, we think as sort of just like raw, brute, material substance, right? And yet in the Hebrew worldview, in the biblical worldview, uh, land and sky are charged with the presence and the purposes of God. God only not, not only creates creation, but he's sustaining and holding together all creation through his very presence, the presence and power of his spirit. And so God creates a good heavens and a good earth charged with his power, his presence, his purposes. Next in the story, uh, heaven and earth are torn by sin. Uh, when Adam and Eve rebel, we find uh, it not only impacts the soul, but impacts the body. We begin to break down in disease and destruction and death and our distance from God. It impacts the earth beneath our feet where now thorns and thistles come up from the ground and our distance from God's presence. And whereas prior to the fall, we see this picture of God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Afterwards, uh, the, the picture is one where God makes his home now in the heavens. And it's not like he's absent or distant, uh, but from the heavens, God oversees and interacts and orchestrates and comes to judge and to redeem and to deliver and to work. And so God is interactively involved and engaged and present and still sovereignly holding things together. And yet there's a sense of distance in the story, a rupture that's been introduced into our communion with God. Now, God is in heaven. We are on earth. And yet, where is this story going? And this is where I think sometimes we have this kind of false narrative that, um, it, well, God's going to kind of whisk us out of earth and uh, up into heaven is kind of the end game. But no, we find in the New Testament and in the gospel that the end of the story is that heaven and earth are destined for reconciliation. So let's look at a few places where this shows up. So Colossians 1 is that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the Savior who reconciles heaven and earth. Jesus brings peace to the war that we've waged on heaven. 
And Colossians is saying here, this isn't like peripheral to Christ's work or identity. It's actually central to what he is accomplishing on the cross, that God is reconciling heaven and earth in and through his son, Christ. So God's end game in the gospel is to reconcile heaven and earth to himself, Christ. I love uh, Matthew 28 where Jesus has just been resurrected and he appears to his disciples and he tells to them, hey, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I love how he doesn't say, hey, all authority in heaven has been given to me, so I'll see you when you get there, right? He actually goes, all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God, which is a picture of he has been given authority over all creation. And the end game, uh, why has God given this authority to Jesus? Why has the Father entrusted his Son with all authority in heaven and on earth? Well, Ephesians would tell us, It's ultimately to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That God's end game is reconciling heaven and earth through his son. The gospel may be more than this, but it's not less. And this is a major theme in uh, the New Testament that the storyline, the the hope is for that day when the earth that currently groans under its bondage to sin and death and decay picture in Romans 8 is that it would be liberated from this bondage and brought into the glorious freedom of God and his children. It's a hope for that day where the presence of God floods the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's a hope for that day where the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and he shall reign forever and ever. I love the ending of the story, Revelation 21 uh, verse 2 where John, kind of the end of the biblical narrative, he says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And a few observations. Um, First is, notice the uh, direction of movement. This isn't kind of us going up to heaven. This is God bringing heaven down to earth. And second, notice the marriage imagery. Uh, What do weddings celebrate? They celebrate union, the two becoming one. And similarly here, God's wedding feast for the world is a time where heaven and earth are being united and brought together and becoming one where we will dwell with God forever. Okay, so God's end game is reconciling heaven and earth. And when we get this storyline in place, I would suggest the smaller subtopic of hell starts to make more sense. Uh, Because to long for the breaking of dawn is by its very nature to long for the banishing of darkness. Like to hope for uh, the healing of the body is implicitly to hope for the excising out of the disease. To pray with Jesus, God, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven is by its very nature to pray uh, that all those forces that stand unrepentantly opposed and resistant to God's good and glorious kingdom be pushed to the sidelines. So one way we could say that God's mission is to reconcile heaven and earth, but suggest another way we could say that very same thing from another angle is to say that God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth, right? 
And uh, one of the reasons that that phrase can be a little funny is it actually uh, it can take on kind of two different meanings. You know, it could, it actually, this phrase could work in both the problematic story and in the gospel story. So I think it could be helpful as kind of a way for us to compare the two stories and see their differences. So if you think of the problematic story, uh, God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. In this storyline, it means that God is on a mission to get us the hell out of earth, right? Uh, there's sort of this sense that uh, earth is... Um, it, 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 it's a mess, and so it's like, God, get us the heck out of Dodge. Beam me up, Scotty. Like, get us out of here, you know, whisk us away. It can tend to be an escapist storyline, right? That God's on a mission to get us the heck out of this place and kind of throw Earth into the cosmic dustbin. But if we look at the gospel story, we find that God is on a mission to get the hell out of us on Earth. In this storyline that we are the ones who have unleashed the destructive power of sin, death, and evil into the world. Like, yeah, Satan and the demonic and all that, but we're the crack in the creation. We are the uh, fissure. Like, it's our bending the knee to the serpent in the garden. It's our uh, resistance and rebellion against God. It's our pursuit of our autonomy. That's the crack through which the destructive power of hell makes its way into the world. I love in the book of James where um, he's talking about the power of the tongue and how it can unleash destruction in, in our lives and the lives of people around us. He says the tongue, it's like consider a great forest and how all it takes is a small spark to burn down an entire forest. And he says the tongue is like that spark. It can, through our words, we can actually burn down the lives of people around us and destroy community. But it's interesting, after that, James goes on and he says, uh, and when it does, the tongue itself is set on fire by hell. And James is saying there that uh, we are the ones who unleash the destructive power of hell in and through our words and our actions into the lives of those around us. Which means that neighbor in the, uh, you know, when you're at work and the coworker gossiping in the cubicle next door, you know, it's not just that they're being annoying, uh, there's this picture, they're almost like breathing hell into the office, right? There is this picture of the power of hell at work in our world today, not just in the future, but today. Uh, when you think of, you know, either on big, massive, systemic structural levels, things like genocide, or sex trafficking, or war. Uh, when you think of what Mark mentioned earlier, the hostility uh, between India and Pakistan over Kashmir and the potential that has to actually rally the nations into nuclear conflict of mutual self-destruction. That is the power of hell at work. And yet it also shows up on much more intimate personal levels, like in the vices of the human heart. Things like pride and lust and rage and greed are these things that we all struggle with. These are the vehicles through which the enemies destructive power makes its way into God's good world. And yet what we find in this gospel story is that because God is good, he has dramatic compassion on the humanity that he's brought up from the dust. His endgame is not to just throw us and our world in the cosmic wastebasket and start over with a brand new one. Rather, we see the storyline as one where because God's good, he creates a good heavens and earth. But because of our evil, heaven and earth are torn apart by the destructive power of sin, death, and hell. Yet because God is good, he is coming to redeem and establish his kingdom 
forever. And the, the part I want to land on here is just the character of God between these two stories. I think this is where uh, part of the enemy's tactic with the caricature and the problematic story is actually to attack the character of God. And you can start to see how uh, in the problematic story, God can start to look like kind of this vindictive, um, unnecessarily vengeful, whatever, you know. Uh, and yet we see in the biblical story, it's still got the gnarly nature of hell, and yet we see God and his character in this. The whole story is motivated by his goodness. His goodness to create a good world, his goodness to have patience with us in the midst of our destruction and rebellion, and ultimately his goodness to come and redeem. All right, well, this gives rise to the question, though. All right, well, when God comes to reconcile heaven and earth, establish his kingdom, and, you know, kick the power of hell out, where does it go? And uh, for many people, I think the image that most folks have is that it goes to the underground torture chamber, right? <laughs> and what I want to do now is look at... Um, said earlier, we want to look at four paradigm shifts, right? So the first paradigm shift is the story. That's what we just looked at. Uh, it's not heaven, you know, God's on a mission to get us into heaven. It's God's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. The next three paradigm shifts I want to talk about have to do with this. So uh, basically, I want to now explore how in the biblical story, uh, particularly in the New Testament, that A, hell's location is not underground, B, that its purpose is not torture, and see that its construction is not a chamber. Right. Uh, so those are, these are the next three that we want to look at. So let's start with A, uh, the location. Uh, where, where, where does it go when God kicks it out, right? And uh, while the caricature, I think, says underground, uh, in the biblical story, what we find is that it's actually outside the city, outside the city. Let me explain what I mean by that and why it's significant. Uh, Jesus' word for hell, the primary word in the New Testament that shows up, for hell is Gehenna. And this word Gehenna uh, might surprise you to know it was an actual literal physical place just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, in Greek, it actually means the Valley of Hinnom. Ge is the word for valley, uh, Henna is in transliteration of Hinnom. And so it's the word in Jesus' day they used to describe this Valley of Hinnom that was just outside Jerusalem's walls. Now, uh, this was a place that you could Google Maps and go to, right? Like not up in a cosmic vortex far, far away and not way down deep in the belly and bowels of the earth. This was a place you could, you know, pinpoint on a map and go out to. Uh, and on the one hand, I think it's good that we translate this word into our English as hell, right? Uh, it's good because it means we don't need to run around speaking in a foreign language all the time. Uh, like dad's cut off in traffic and I'd be like, what the Gehenna? You know, and, uh, <laughs> when you... <laughs> When your favorite Melbourne sports team wins, you know, Gehenna, yeah, you know, like, like, so it's helpful, you know, like, it has overlap and common associations with our English language. Uh, but there is a danger, right? I think one of the dangers is that um, there may be some unhealthy associations we have with our word that Jesus doesn't necessarily have in mind. And there could be some things Jesus is actually trying to say that we might miss. Uh, so I think it's helpful to go back and say, uh, not only what was Gehenna, but where was Gehenna, and what was its history in the biblical story. And when we go into the Old Testament, one of the things that we find is it had a deep, dark, and dangerous history. It was associated with child sacrifice. That is its dominant association in the Old Testament. 
And so this was the place, uh, particularly in the prophets, uh, where we read like Jeremiah, uh, and the prophets where the people would go outside Jerusalem, outside the city walls, and when you read about them going up to the high places, and they would make the Asherah poles and these things to foreign gods, and they would uh, worship other gods. Uh, but then Gehenna was the valley at the base of the high places, and this is where they would sacrifice their children to Molech. And so they would light the flames and murder their children. And in the prophets, uh, this became a signpost, like it was such an extreme example of how far gone the people had become that God rails against what was taking place in Gehenna, in the Valley of Hinnom, as a sign of the idolatry and the injustice of his people. It becomes almost, takes on these loaded associations, almost like a symbol of the idolatry and the injustice that had come to characterize God's people. So let's take a look at each of those. When we think about um, I, uh, idolatry. Well, why was this so significant? Like, God's people were commanded, uh, they were actually, the picture was like a marriage with God, where God had brought them out of Egypt, out from under the oppressive gods and uh, the other, uh, the injustice and slavery and oppression under that regime and those ideologies and those things. God brought them out and brought them to himself. There was a picture that they were to be in union together, life together, like a, a, a groom and a bride. And so I think the picture we should have in mind uh, is as Israel goes outside of Jerusalem, out away from the temple, away from the place where God's presence was most intimately united with his people, and they go out to the Valley of Hinnom to murder their children on the altar. It's, it's like idolatry. It's like a picture of that cheap hotel on the outskirts of town where someone leaves to have the affair. This was a place where Israel went to cheat on God other lovers, these other idols. And God, rightly so, like catching his people, uh, you know, catching his spouse in bed with someone else, like gets angry. He's like, no, uh, partly because of the union that he has designed them for with him, and partly because he knows it's a road that leads to destruction, that this leads to a place back like Egypt. So it's because of the goodness of God that he can't stand Gehenna, what happens there. Uh, second, it was associated a, a place of injustice. This is where Israel murdered her children. And if she's married to God, this means she's murdering his kids too. Right? And so God rightly gets angry. And Jeremiah, he says, never did I command such a thing. Never would I even think of such a thing. How could you go and do this? How far gone have you become? And often today, I think, uh, you know, we tend to think of idolatry and injustice as just two very different disconnected things. Idolatry, that's like a religious thing. Injustice, that's like a social thing. Uh, but in the biblical worldview, they're much more intertwined. And the idea is when we take God and we replace him with something else, we make something else more ultimate, whether that's you know, sex, money, power, whether that's experiences, whether that's uh, notoriety, reputation, pride, fame, uh, intellect, whatever that thing is that we exalt over God, picture is one that it ultimately unleashes destruction into our lives and into the lives of those around us. We see this in uh, this passage in Jeremiah, I think, brings this out, where he's talking about the Valley of Hinnom and Gehenna. And God says to Jeremiah, he says, for my people, they have forsaken me, and they have made this a place of foreign gods. So he's talking here about idolatry, right? Foreign gods. He goes on the very next breath to say, they have filled this place with the blood 
of the innocent. That the foreign gods and the blood of the innocent are interconnected. The idolatry and the injustice are inherently related to one another. All right, well, what can we learn from this history about the nature of hell? At first, I would say is this, uh, that hell is a cruel place, and yet it's cruel not because of God is cruel. Uh, it's cruel because of the idols that there hold sway. Right? Uh, to, uh, yes, there's the imagery in the backdrop here of flames, uh, and yet these flames were lit by human hands. It's like a picture of our destruction and our distance from God. And so to blame the cruelty of hell on God, I think it's similar or analogous to an alcoholic blaming sobriety for the cause of their affliction. Uh, sobriety is not the thing causing the affliction. Sobriety is the cure the alcoholic needs. And it's the absence of sobriety that causes the pain the affliction of, of their state. Similarly, God is the cure Gehenna needs. Right? It is the rejection of God, the distance from God, the autonomy from God, and the destruction that comes downstream that gives rise to the destructive nature of hell. Um, <clears throat> uh, I think, too, when we start to kind of place this back into the, the, the storyline of Scripture, we find that it actually resonates with a lot of our deepest held cultural longings, right? Uh, what I would like, you know, what I, well, okay, so first off, we find here the location is not underground. It's outside the city. And again, when we get the storyline in place, I find that it's actually the location, it's not so much up and down, like good folks go up, bad folks go down, as it is center and periphery that God reestablishes his goodness, his kingdom at the center of creation, and uh, all the unrepentant evil and uh, rebels who are unrepentantly aligned against him get pushed to the periphery where they can no longer hurt or destroy. And this starts to sound shockingly similar to the storyline of some of our most popular fairy tales and stories, right? Like cultural stories. Uh, so what I like to call the fairy tale is real here, right? Um, an example few examples. Uh, I think the fairy tale is true. This is like the fairy tale come true. Uh, so when my daughter was a little younger, we were reading through uh, the C.S. Lewis, the Narnia trilogy, and one of the books was The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in this book, uh, there's kind of this prince, and he's on the ship, and, uh, and they're, they're sailing, and, and there's this kingdom that they've been away from for a long time. And because of that, like this corrupt governor has taken hold, and there's injustice and oppression and all these gnarly things happening on this island in that day. And there are some people on the island who are living high off the hog, just kind of going, hey, this is great. We're going to uh, exploit and live for ourselves and what we want. And yet there are others on the island who are holding out hope that one day the good king is returning, he's coming back. And so they are trying to align their lives with the coming of the king and his kingdom. Eventually the ship lands, the prince gets off, and they go and uh, scope out kind of subversively, secretly. They get the state of the, the island, and um, eventually this movement kind of forms around them, and eventually they take the castle. And when they do, for the most part, once the word spreads, like the good king is back, the jig is up, the kingdom's here, like for the most part, those who have aligned themselves against the king, like recognize their own accord, like game's over, jig is up, and they go of their own accord kind of outside the city. And yet there are some who try and stay. And so Goombas, the, 
corrupt governor, kind of the Satan figure, there's a scene where he and uh, the prince are in conversation. He's basically trying to convince them, hey, let me stick around. Like, you can be the king, you can do your thing, but let me kind of work out my corrupt sort of mafia deal on the side, and I'll, I'll, I'll cut you some of the profit, basically, you know. And, um, and when you get to this part of the story, everything in my daughter, five, six years old at the time, everything in my five-year-old daughter goes, no, like, don't compromise with evil. Don't compromise with the bad powers. Like, she wants the good king, because he is good, to not compromise, but to call it out and to deal with it. And thankfully, he does. The prince says, hey, the only remaining question, governor, is whether you and the rest of the rabble will leave without a flogging or with one. <laughs> I love that. Like, you're getting out of Dodge. It's just a question whether you're going to go without a flogging or with whether either you're going to get out or we're going to kick you out, right? Um, you may choose which you prefer. <laughs> and the picture here is one of where it's because of the king's goodness that he's unwilling to compromise with unrepentant evil. It's because of the solidity of his character, his justice, his righteousness, goodness. And something, when it comes in the form of the children's fairy tale, we recognize it as good and right and true, and we long for it. We long for of the kingdom. We see this not just in fairy tales, uh, we see it in Star Wars. Like when I was a kid, Luke Skywalker, and when the rebels win at the end, and uh, the Ewoks are dancing, and there's the big party going on, everything, you know, and we're not bummed when we see like the Death Star exploded and the stormtroopers slinking off from the center to the periphery where they can no longer harm or destroy. Or even other types of storylines like uh, Cinderella. And we are stoked at the end when her and the prince get together and there's, you know, everything's good. And we're not bummed that the three wicked stepsisters who have stood aligned against that ending the whole time go slinking off to the periphery. Throughout the story, they have been at the center where they have the power and authority to try and keep the bride and the groom, the, the prince and the kingdom, to keep them apart. But now at the end of the story, they're pushed out from the center to the periphery where they can no longer uh, intrude upon the good purposes of heaven. <clears throat> so we see here that uh, location is not underground outside the city. And now when we kind of get this in place, I think we also start to see that the purpose is not torture. I'd suggest to you that it's actually protection. That <clears throat> God protects the goodness and the flourishing of his kingdom by containing the destructive power of evil outside. That God's end game is to protect that which he redeems, establishes, and God protects it uh, by, uh, through containment. You think of hell as almost like a Tupperware container for evil or something, right? Like, like a place where its, its destructive impulses and force are no longer allowed to tear apart God's good world. When I think about this, I, I think of another theme I like to call uh, liberating the capital. Right? And what I mean by this is um, you could look at the fairy tale thing and go, okay, well, that's cute and fluffy and fairy tales and all, uh, but what about, like, does this actually bring hope in, like, the raw dirt and soil of real life and history and earth? And I think it does. We also see this throughout history in the way that we tend to tell uh, war stories right? within War stories, there's this theme of longing and of hope for the liberation of the capital. 
to give an example, what I mean by this, uh, has spent a lot of time over, over the years uh, in Cambodia, Southeast Asia. I uh, used to oversee our international partnerships there with Cambodian leaders. And uh, it broke my heart kind of learning more over the years about the history of the Khmer Rouge and the genocide that took place there in the 1970s, uh, one of the worst genocides of the 20th century. And <clears throat> the Khmer Rouge kind of came to power, uh, took over the capital of Phnom Penh, and led just a, a brutal regime where an estimated roughly 20% or so of the population um, was killed. And talking to survivors from that generation at that time, they would talk about uh, longing and holding out hope, like would someone come and kick the Khmer Rouge out of power? Would someone come and liberate the capital of Phnom Penh and reclaim authority over the country? And eventually it happened. Eventually uh, the Vietnamese actually came in uh, and they took over Phnom Penh and they kicked uh, the Khmer Rouge out of power. And in one of the areas, we had a partnership up in the, in the northern region, it was an area where um, the Khmer Rouge had basically said, hey, instead of hunting us down and killing us, we've been stripped of our weapons, of our authority. Uh, would you allow us to kind of go up north to the periphery of the country and basically kind of hole up there and uh, live out our existence there? And, and what you can see almost is like an act of mercy, the new government said, okay, like, you've been stripped of your power, and rather than annihilate you, we'll let you kind of go up to this area of the country and live out your days there. And so this happened, and, and, and a few observations that I, I think are interesting, kind of analogous to the story is, um, one is, uh, if you lived outside of the capital, Phnom Penh, when you heard that the capital had been liberated, it was good news, even if you weren't in Phnom Penh, because it meant liberation was coming for the rest of the country as a whole. And similarly in the Bible, we see and kind of read about the coming liberation of Jerusalem and all. And you could kind of go, well, that's great for those who live way over there in Jerusalem, but we're kind of here in Australia, like pretty far, a long ways away. Does this actually mean anything for us? Uh, but the picture in the biblical story is that Jerusalem is like the capital of God's kingdom into the earth as a whole. And liberation of the capital is a picture of coming liberation, the hope of the world. So we read, yeah, and the picture in the uh, New Jerusalem in Revelation, I love how it's depicted as like 1,500 miles long by 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles high. It's like, it's probably, um, it's apocalyptic literature, so the dimensions are probably symbolic, and yet there's this picture of, that's like the size of a continent, right? Like it's massive, it's expanded now to come down and bring God's flourishing into the earth as a whole. And when he does, we see this theme of protection, that God liberates his capital, and he protects his kingdom. So Isaiah 11, uh, God says, On that day when my kingdom comes, uh, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. The holy mountain is Mount Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Uh, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, where the temple is. So uh, there are these forces that currently harm and hurt and destroy and tear apart the destructive power of evil in the world. God says, On that day they will neither harm nor destroy in all Jerusalem, my holy mountain. And goes on in the very next breath to say, For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The liberation of the capital of the holy mountain, Jerusalem, is hope for the world, the vehicle through which the earth is redeemed and reclaimed and restored. And uh, those, when he does, God protects his kingdom from those forces that harm and destroy, that are unwilling to bend the knee and align with his kingdom. Uh, I also love this passage, Zechariah 2, 
where God says again, on that day my kingdom comes, uh, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. Uh, I love that image where God's going like, on that day, man, I'm just going to tear down the walls of the house to let anyone and everyone who wants to come in and be a part of the party and the celebration and join with me in my kingdom, uh, anyone who wants, you know, come on in. And that's exciting, but if you were one of the people back in the day, you'd be like, okay, that's great, God, that you want to kind of knock down the walls, let everyone in, uh, but the walls are kind of there for a reason, like they protect us from invasion, you know, so what are you going to do about that? Um, that would be a scary thing back in the day in the ancient world to be in a city without walls. And so God goes on in the very next breath to say, I myself will be a wall of fire around it. I will be its glory within. <clears throat> I love this picture where God protects his kingdom, not with tanks and jet fighters and AK-47s. Like God protects his kingdom with his very presence. And it's interesting to me that God's presence is experienced within the city as glory and outside the city as protective fire. No one will be able to harm and invade and intrude upon the peace of God's kingdom. All right, well, so we've seen the purpose is not torture, it's protection. Uh, now let's go to the fourth and the final paradigm shift here, is its construction a chamber? Nope. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't come up with a good alternative word, so I just, yeah. <laughs> uh, But what I mean by this, by the chamber, is I, I think many people have the, this kind of image, the caricature, is that um, God, you know, that, that people are like, God, I'm so sorry, I'll do anything, I love you, I just want to be with you, I, what do I miss say, God, I just want to be with you, and God's like, ah, nope, sorry, too bad, don't want to, you know. And there's kind of this ironic reversal of the gospel in Maple's image where we're the ones pursuing God and he's the one unwilling to be found. And yet what we find in the biblical story is that this is backwards, that the picture is actually uh, one of God coming after us, but there is this image, this reality, like the hardening of our heart, that if we continually reject and resist and turn against God and harden ourselves against him, that uh, there's almost this picture like the point of no return or encasing ourselves in our own rebellion and autonomy and evil against the goodness of God. One of the scariest things is that we could actually, man, is ultimately that God could give us what we want, like our autonomy. <clears throat> because the reality is we have skeletons in our closet, right? The stuff we don't want to deal with, we want to avoid, we want to re resist often the presence and the goodness of God. And when I, I, I could see, um, I think some people saying like, uh, well, this is maybe, well, a side note here, and when we talk about that, like, I'm not saying that um, hell isn't bad, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to be given the impression of like, oh, you're, trying, you know, you're just trying to minimize, make it sound like it's not that bad. Um, I love, uh, I remember hearing uh, Tim Keller once, he was talking, it was, uh, he said, you know, people will often ask, like, do you think the flames of hell, are they metaphorical or real? And he said something like, you know, I think they're metaphor. And, so, and people will be like, oh, whew, you know, like, really good. And then, like, a sigh of relief or something. And they'll be like, well, I think they're a metaphor for something much worse. You know, and then people are like, uh -huh, you know, it's <laughs> here. And I think that's part of the picture. I'm not trying to minimize, I don't want to say it's not that bad. Uh, it's actually to go, it may even be more serious than we thought, 
but it's to relocate where the problem is arising from. That uh, the, the, the issue here is not that God has kind of this vindictive dark side. Uh, God is historic. Us Christian theology would say that God in his very essence, his triune existence, Father, Son, and Spirit from before the foundation of the world, that God is life, light, and love. That there is nothing that we can do to impede upon the glory and the goodness of God's life, light, and love. The problem here arises from our rebellion against the God who is life, light, and love. The corruption of our character and our formation in resistance against him. And that, in, in my mind, that, that's actually scarier than any physical flame, right? Like our, uh, the picture of sin's destructive power in our lives, tearing down our lives, tearing down the lives of people around us in our hardened posture place against God. It's, it's not necessarily to try and minimize, but to properly locate where the issue is coming from in the corrupted affections and distorted desires and commitments and allegiances of our human heart. And yet the good news is, is that we come before Christ, his question to us is not, hey, are you good enough to get in my kingdom? Like, have you gotten your stuff together and jumped high enough, worked hard enough, done, done enough stuff to kind of get in? Jesus' question to us is, Will you let me heal you? Will you let me heal you? The heart of the great physician in the gospel is to heal and restore us and make us whole. I remember years ago having this image of uh, my grandmother, who's one of the sweetest people you could have ever imagined in the world. You know, so my grandmother uh, standing before Jesus right next to and alongside uh, Pol Pot, the architect of the Khmer Rouge, the genocide in Cambodia. And just the revolutionary nature and power of this question that Jesus has questioned them both. I mean, will you let me heal you? And the revolutionary reality that my grandma could say no and Pol Pot could say yes. Right? That, and we see this in the gospel. We see a kingdom where um, the murderers and prodigals and prostitutes and the, the unexpected, the people on the periphery, those who would be the least expected, the revolutionary nature of grace are saying yes, being brought into the kingdom. And those who are kind of the polished and professional and the upright and uptight and those who think their own clothes are good enough are actually rejecting and resisting and find themselves weeping and gnashing their teeth outside the kingdom. The revolutionary nature of grace is that it's not about, uh, I just found, no matter how much we would say we were about grace, for some reason when we get into the topic of hell, we tend to go into this other mindset where it suddenly becomes about performance. And no, like even here we find that the whole thing is driven around the grace of God, whether we are willing to receive and be transformed by the God who has come for us in Christ. All right, well, in closing, um, I, I think the uh, question that, could be asked here is like, okay, well, Josh, it's better than the caricature, but still, is this the best option? Is that kind of the best that God could come up with? And I'd suggest to you, if we harden our hearts against God, uh, if we say no to him, that I think this is the most merciful option on offer. And one of the ways I like to think about that is through the gospel as a wedding proposal, right? The gospel is a wedding proposal where God in Christ is essentially saying, marry me. When we think of the cross, it's uh, Jesus laying down his life for his bride. It's God 
taking upon himself in Christ our sin and our suffering and our shame, taking our trauma and our tragedy and our rebellion and all of the different things that we have torn apart in this world, he's taking it upon himself to bear it in the vicarious humanity of Christ in order to offer to us, come and be united with me, be bound in union and life with me forever. The cross is God's marriage proposal to his bride to enter in union with him forever. And so if we say no to that marriage proposal, if we reject and say, God, we'd rather live on our own rather than with you, what options are there? Well, I'd say um, there's four I can think of, only four I can think of, and um, yeah, and the biblical one seems like the best. So the first option, I think, is for God to say, hey, uh, marry me and bring in your old lovers, right? Uh, and this is essentially, I think, what we often want to do. This is saying, hey, God is saying, marry me, and I'm going to ignore unrepentant sin, right? Like, um, I'm going to allow the stuff that was in the Valley of Hinnom, the idolatry, the injustice, back into the kingdom. But this is essentially going, God, we want you to compromise with evil. But that is not a more merciful option. Like, if babies are still crying, nations are still warring, like the world is still getting ravaged and torn apart, all the same stuff we see on the nightly news really are still going on, then it's not really the new creation. Like this option makes a farce of redemption. This is not a more merciful option. Uh, and the reality that God wants full union with us. He actually wants nothing that would impede the intimacy and the depth and the joy of our relationship with him. A second option, I think, is, okay, well, God could say, hey, marry me, or I'll kill you, right? <laughs> and um, this is what I think uh, some, some versions of historically have been called uh, annihilationism uh, can kind of come under this, where not, not always, but uh, often, I think, for some folks, there can, uh, this can come from a reaction going, uh, often a reaction against the caricature. We're going, um, man, the character just looks so bad, so God, can't you just kind of put them out of their misery at some point, right? And so if the first one is, God, why can't you just ignore unrepentant sin? The second one is like, why can't you just annihilate unrepentant sin? Just kind of have a, a point where you put them out of their misery and all that. And um, I think uh, the problem with this one, I think there's a, a couple problems. One is that um, I, don't, I don't know that this is necessarily more, well, first off, this is just a really bad way to propose, right? Like, um, if any of you are considering kind of popping the question today, and this is how you're planning doing it, come talk to me, talk to Mark. I will call the police. I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, not not a good way to propose, right? Uh, but second, I think that um, you think of that story I mentioned in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge, that where it it was actually an act of mercy once forces of evil have been stripped of their power and authority and ability to harm, there's actually an act of mercy to let them live out their days in, in relative peace or whatever, you know, under a condition um, where they can no longer hurt or destroy, but were actually handed over to a space under kind of the conditions that they had chosen. All right. Uh, the third, uh, I think one of the issues here is I think it can minimize that's probably the biggest and most significant for me theologically is I think it can minimize uh, the scope and power of Christ's resurrection. That as in Adam all die, that humanity has, uh, death has been unleashed through Adam, so in Christ all will be made alive. That in Christ, God is restoring what sin has um, destroyed. 
And in now it's no longer a question. We can no longer hide from God in the grave. Like our annihilation in the grave is precisely what Christ has conquered through his resurrection. And now we can no longer hide from God in the grave, but the question is how do we relate to the one who raises us from the grave? As we stand before him, do we long for him or do we still cling to our desire for distance from him? All right, so this does not seem to me a more merciful option. Uh, the third is God saying, hey, marry me or I'll lock you in the basement, right? And <laughs> this is what I think some forms of more like universalism kind of image where there's a sense of, uh, well, God, if you're not going to put them out of their misery, maybe can you use uh, hell to kind of purge them of evil and kind of purify them until you can bring them into uh, ultimately and eventually being with you? Uh, there's a couple of problems with this one. Uh, again, bad way to propose. Let us know if you're thinking of popping the question this way. Uh, but a couple other issues. One is, um, I, I think this can misunderstand the very nature of uh, redemption and the problem at work in hell. Hell arises uh, not because of, you know, so the question here, first one, God, why can't you ignore unrepentant sin? Second one, God, why can't you just annihilate it? Third one, I think this one's going, God, why can't you redeem unrepentant sin? I think it misunderstands the nature of the problem. The problem, hell arises not because of God's refusal to redeem, but our refusal to be redeemed. Like the corruption of our heart and our affections and autonomy against God. And another issue here is I think this misunderstands the nature of the way love works. Like you can't coerce someone into loving you. Like this is, uh, I mean, you think of people who get abducted, and sometimes over time there can be this strange affection or bond that occurs between the abductor and the person, but we would all look at that and go, man, that's unhealthy. Like there's something wrong there, right? And, and so uh, coercion does not give rise to affection. Right? Um, and I think it w this is also often responding to the character. God, why can't, well, the character's ugly, but God, maybe you can use it for something good. But it's not the caricature that we're talking about, right? It's the fourth and final one. I think I go, hey, marry me or go your own way. And I think this is the picture that we get in the biblical story of a God who is going, be united with me forever. I've shown you how far I'm willing to go all the way to the cross, all the way to the grave and back, all the way to hell and back to be united with you forever. Be united with me. That God has offered us union with him in Christ. And yet, if we say, God, I would rather prefer my own autonomy to worship, I would rather prefer life from myself to life with you, uh, that the greatest judgment we might have is God giving us what we want, and kind of sovereignly calling out and handing us over to that reality and upholding us in, in that state. <clears throat> At the end of the day, I think the invitation is, Receiving Jesus, right here, receiving Jesus. But I would suggest to you that receiving Jesus is both the easiest thing and the hardest thing in the world. Right? Like, what does it look like to accept the wedding invitation, to say yes to the marriage proposal? So it's both the easiest thing and the hardest thing in the world. It's the easiest thing because it's free, right? It costs us nothing. Like, Christ has paid the price. God said, I want to be with you. I'm willing to go all the way. Come and be with me. It's the easiest thing in the world because it costs us nothing. And yet, it's the hardest thing in the world because it costs us everything. It means exchanging our autonomy for worship, trading a life lived on one's own to a life lived with and for and under God and his kingdom forever. 
that it's actually an invitation to not just like Mary Jo Schmo, right? Like we're talking about being bound in union with the creator of the universe, bending the knee before Christ as king and aligning our lives with him and his kingdom and the goodness that flows from him. The invitation is communion to communion with the very life of God. And what we see in all of this is that this whole story is driven through and through by the goodness of God. So it's the goodness of God that is out to reconcile heaven and earth, and it's the goodness of God that is out to deal honestly and justly with the destructive power of evil that is at work in our world today. And that's where our hope is at, that his kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and he would deal with the unrepentant rebellion, both out there and in here, in our heart, the presence and power of his spirit. So I'd love for us to have a little time here to discuss before we go to a break, uh, and love some discussion just around which of those paradigm shifts kind of stood out the most to you, all right? So just to kind of recap, uh, the four shifts, uh, the first one was the story, the heaven and earth story. It's not earth now, heaven, hell later. It's God reconciling heaven and earth. The second shift was about the location. It's not underground, but outside the city. Um, and God establishing his, the center, God establishing his kingdom at the center and pushing evil out to the periphery. So the story, the location. The third is the purpose, that it's uh, not so like a torture chamber, so much as God protecting his kingdom by containing the nature of evil. And then the fourth is the um, uh, sort of construction, we might call it, uh, that it's, it's more an issue of our hardening our hearts against the goodness of God in Against him. So let's take a little time and talk with someone, a few people around you. Which one stood out to you the most and why? Also feel free to share. We're going to have a Q&A session later in the day. If there's, if there's maybe a burning question still, something that you're like, man, what about this? Or, um, yeah, and we, can, we, can, we can hit those later, but feel free to process that as well. Let's break and discuss. <laughs> 